So uh, I'm going to pick up from the assumption of the former speaker, which was an assumption, of course, and that assumption is that artificial legal intelligence, <coughs> which is um, what I thought we were talking about, whether it actually gets it right. And for me, the interesting question is not even whether it gets it right, but whether we are not entering an age of a new catch-22, that is, whether we can still answer the question whether this technology will get it right. And I will explain myself. <coughs> this is a cartoon that sum, sums up <laughs> anything I want to say today and tomorrow. Um, so if I don't get beyond this slide, you can at least have my point. <laughs> Note that there is three times the word think, and that it probably doesn't mean the same thing, and that that is what this is all about. Um, kindly, the New York Times was hired by uh, Simon Stern to run uh, an article in advance of the conference of tomorrow where the keynote speaker, um, Dana Remus, was uh, referred to. She wrote a very interesting uh, paper. Uh, and it was a very interesting article. Anyways, I'm just citing from it. A Mr. Salazar, a practicing lawyer, obviously, <coughs> was particularly impressed by a legal memo service, memo service that Ross, that's the artificial intelligence built on Watson, is developing. Type in a legal question and Ross replies a day later with a few paragraphs, summarizing the answer in a two-page explanatory memo. The results, he said, are indistinguishable from a memo written by a lawyer. And he said, that blew me away. It's scary if it gets better. We're going to lose jobs, as we've just heard. But then the article goes on, well, not yet. The system is pretty good, identifying the gist of questions and cases, but uh, Ross is not much of a writer. The chief technology officer of Ross says, so humans take the rough draft that Ross comes up with and then creates the final memos, and that takes a day. Um, and it will take a long time before Ross can actually do this. Now, what interests me is what happens at the moment that this human person is sitting down, picking up this information, assuming it's correct. <coughs> is this a highly paid top lawyer which is checking this? Or is this the paralegal that will just assume that it's correct and, and has a literary degree, so it's doing a nice job? Um, so this is, of course, the point. I want to give some very quick examples of machine learning, because that's what we're talking about. I'm going to give one example of um, um, natural language processing, which most of the legal intelligence of legal texts are based on. I'm going to take a non-legal, um, non-law example. So imagine we university professors have to, to grade a lot of essays. When uh, Harvard and Yale and MIT started a MOOC, Massive Online Open Course, um, together, they foresaw that they would not be able to have the staff to check all these open essay questions. So they developed, at the same time, software to grade them. Um, this works as follows. So you have, let's say, 3,000 essays on the same question. The teacher grades the first 100 then gives the system, the machine learning system, 
both the 100 essays and the grades. <coughs> that system will then try to find mathematical functions that relate the input, that is text, to the output, that is a grade. The teacher then corrects uh, or grades the next 100 essays, but he also feeds them to the machine. Then he looks at what the machine does and looks at what he's done her, she's done herself, compares it, and tells the machine this shouldn't have been seven but nine, this shouldn't have been two but nine. It turns out that often the very low marks, they get it wrong, because these are original people often, um, et cetera, et cetera. And this process is reiterated. So the algorithms are trained on the data set, which is the um, combination of essays and grades, until the system does it good, good enough, maybe even better than a teacher because the system doesn't get tired, and very important, the system doesn't get irritated when the same mistake returns for the uh, 2,000th time. Um, as you can imagine, teachers, when they see that this is working, so after 300, they will let the system do it, <coughs> and maybe just check the, the lowest bottom and middle sort of pass fail. Then at some point, teachers will get bored and start doing something else. Uh, this is a very important uh, occurrence, because if teachers start doing something else, and they allow this uh, system to develop its own dynamics, then if we think a few years further, the question is if you then ask the teacher, can you check back whether the teacher can still answer that question? Has this been done well or not? A totally different example. This was an example of supervised machine learning. That means that the system learns from examples and from corrections. So the examples is what you feed the system. The corrections is that you say, well, the output is not entirely right, blah, blah, blah. Now, there's a lot of talk about unsupervised machine learning. And many people think <coughs> from the pseudo-religious, worshipy um, articles you find in many newspapers and in consultant um, output, that if you just put a whole lot of data together and then run some algorithms, then all the problems in the world are going to be solved. Well, it simply works like this. Take the example of a, a Google experiment with, uh, I think it's called dream techniques or something like that. So they trained algorithms on animal faces. They didn't tell them what this was about or where they wanted to go. They just asked the algorithms, look for patterns. So if you ask algorithms, look for patterns, which is basically mathematical functions, they, they just go ahead and do it. After that, after having trained the algorithms on this, they show the system pictures of flowers on the right-hand side on the bottom. If you look well, you see that the system actually does recognize something, namely animal faces. Now, I imagine that you're not surprised that if you train a system of animal faces, that it will always see animal faces in anything you show it. Now, this is obvious, because I'm telling you, 
But when we are looking at very, very complex systems with very complex data sets that you have to gather and curate, this is not always obvious that you have worked on a data set that is going to train your algorithms in a certain way. Now, let's quickly go into a brief discussion of um, uh, an article <coughs> written by, I think, uh, one to three computer scientists and one lawyer, if I see well, on where they claimed to be predicting the judicial decisions of the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and they actually said in their abstract, I highlighted it, that these predictions showed that it is the facts of the case that predict the outcome and not the relevant law. And I found that a very interesting uh, conclusion. This is also what has been briefed everywhere in newspapers. Uh, let's have a, a little bit of a closer look. Now, <coughs> I work in the Department of Computer Science. I, uh, my colleagues are data scientists. And the first thing you see when people begin to write is that they made a whole lot of assumptions. And after that, they do their work. And in the beginning, when I was working there, I would say, yeah, but those assumptions are obviously false. And then he said, yes. So I said, yeah, but that, that means your output is false. And he said, yeah, so what? But if we don't assume this, we can't do the, the maths. And for a lawyer, that's a very strange way of arguing. But for a computer scientist who is a mathematician, that doesn't matter. You're training algorithms. You can learn from that. And you can, <coughs> at a later point, look at the assumptions. The point is that the consultants who are selling this stuff also to lawyers now, are of course not going to expound on their assumptions. Mm -hmm. This is data scientists who wrote this article, so they do clarify their assumption. The first assumption is that they worked, so the training set on which the algorithms were uh, trained was text extracted from published judgments, and that means the assumption is that that stands as a crude proxy for applications lodged with the court. It's an assumption that is, of course, not valid, as well as for briefs submitted by parties in pending cases. Now, why do they do that? Well, obviously, because this is low-hanging fruit. This is what you can get your hands on. It's as simple as that. Nothing more complicated. Now, another point which they explain and stress, which I think is extremely important. As a lawyer, you know that when uh, a judgment is written and you describe the fact of the case, which you will do after you have made your decisions, your decision, you are going to massage the facts in a way that confirm your decision. And of course, you can make up facts. You're going to be checked for that. But um, it's not that it's the actual facts as they are given are in the judgment. Also, case held inadmissible uh, beforehand are struck out. Uh, they are not reported uh, because they are not uh, part of that database. Um, and that, again, means that there is no text-based predictive analysis of these cases. That further limits, uh, it's, of course, Again, a matter of low-hanging fruit. The other issue is that um, they uh, restricted themselves to cases related to Article 3, 6, and 8. That's the human right against torture, 
the right to a fair trial and the right to privacy. Why? Well, uh, very practical because um, they provided the most data to be scraped and sufficient cases for each. Of course, we know, anybody who knows the case law of the court, that it's always a question how you're going to frame this case. And it's always going to be on the, on the cusp. And often, lawyers will do that in a clever way and come up with two or three different violations. Now, this you can't see if you're going to focus on this. Uh, I've left out all the slides that, that detailed, um, but this is the conclusions. They say circumstances, facts, and topics are best predictors. And when you combine these, you can actually come to a prediction of 79%. And then they say law has the lowest performance. Now you have to keep in mind that in case of inadmissibility, also after the cases go to the court, the court itself can decide to inadmissibility. And in that case, there is no law section. So that influences the statistics. They discuss in their article uh, that and whether facts are more important than law. And they then draw the conclusion, which is, again, low-hanging fruit, I would say, that this is now evidence. I think the term is used that legal realism, an important theoretical perspective on law, turns out to be realistic. I believe this is simply nonsense for two reasons, as indicated by the authors themselves. They're, they're scientists, they're not consultants. The facts formulated by the court may, be, may have been tuned by the, to the outcome. And because of the fact that the inadmissibility judgment don't have a law section that uh, further influences uh, the situation. Now, does this mean that I'm saying that we should not engage machine learning uh, as lawyers? No, I think um, I think there are there's an enormous amount of possibilities to to employ these technologies um, to achieve better law. First of all, it can be used to provide feedback to lawyers, but also to clients, to prosecutors, and also to courts. And um, these are four different groups. If this feedback only goes to the lawyers, to the law firms, and not to clients, or not in an understandable way, we already have a problem. If the same software is used by prosecutors and courts, we have a problem with the uh, trias politica. Next, you could use this technology to start sensitivity analysis. So you could start modulating, you could start playing with the facts, trying different legal precepts, trying different claims, and then seeing what calculations, what predictions the system comes up with. You're not saying, oh, this is really true. No, that's not the point. You're playing around to get new ideas. So basically, third point, you're creating a space for experimentation, to develop new insights, to develop new argumentation patterns, and to test alternative approaches. You could even and clearly detect missing information, both facts and legal arguments, and that could help to improve the outcome of cases. I'm convinced that this will improve the acuity 
of human judgment. But there is one caveat. Not if it is meant to replace human judgment. Because then something totally different happens. Now, I'm even not saying that it should not replace human judgment. I think the question that we have to ask, and that's a question of professional ethics, but also a question of politics, and a question of law in the end, is when are we going to use this to replace human judgment? And will we have the intelligence to not confuse that with law? Because as soon as you replace human judgment with these sort of machineries, you should call it public administration. If courts um, or public prosecutors or legislators or administration employ this. It's public administration, it's not law. And it should be under the rule of law. So you must build in all sorts of uh, capabilities of uh, contestation. Um, then I come back to uh, the question that I started with. For me, the most critical thing is how do we make sure that human experts, lawyers, are capable of <coughs> testing, checking, evaluating, assessing what these machines are actually doing? There are a whole lot of political questions hidden, very interesting political questions hidden in the core of the, of the machine learning um, stuff. What data have you trained on? Is it accurate? Is it precise? Is it complete? How did you develop your hypothesis space? That is, what types of mathematical formulas have you started on? Did you train the same algorithms on a different data set? And then ask the question, hey, where come the different outcomes? Did you train different algorithms on the same data set and again raise the question, hey, where come the different outcomes? This sort of transparency implies testability. And if we do not have testability, we do not have contestability. And for me, contestability is the heart of the rule of law.